Zoe Heller is the author of two previous novels, Everything You Know and What Was She Thinking? Notes on a Scandal, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2003. She lives in New York. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you for having me. What Was She Thinking was shortlisted for the Booker, so you got one of those special books that they have bound. They did a strange thing where they got artists to do a special presentation. Mine came in a teacher's box file. It was slightly strange. <laughs> but yes, it was very nice to have. I just interviewed, I think he may have been shortlisted the same time you were, Damon Galgut. He was, yes. And he showed me his. Oh, and what was his like? It was pretty traditional looking. Oh. Leather. <laughs> oh, I would have much preferred that. <laughs> and I got something slightly wacky. A wackier artist. Yeah, no, I admired that book of Galgut's. Was it the doctor's wife? No. Yeah, well, I forget the name. The doctor's something. It was a fine book. It was about doctors, yes. <laughs> it wasn't called The Doctor's Wife. We'll, it'll come back to us. I know you've okay. done tons of interviews and you've talked about the book extensively, but you come back typically to an article that you had read about the God or belief gene. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to look at that. But can I just uh, interject a second here? Sure. The truth is, it is in the nature of such interviews that you get asked for some, you know, crucial moment of, yeah. of genesis, and you come up not quite arbitrarily, but you you choose something. Yeah. The truth is, something. it's a kind of strange and largely, to me, obscure process how you get going on a book. It occurred to me the other day, out of the blue, that another big part of it had been an argument I had had with a friend who is a long-time committed communist, in which I put it to him that his sort of articles of faith were as much a matter of blind faith as those of a Catholic, let's say. Mm -hmm. And it was quite a kind of passionate, angry <laughs> discussion. I think that was probably quite seminal also. A and also then there were a whole bunch of sort of technical things that got me going. I really wanted to write in the third person. I wanted to write about a group of characters rather than just one and so on. Okay. So the belief gene is, it's true, was a, was a an important thing. But I'm not sure in what order those came. Okay, well, yeah, I suppose, I mean, you look at Marxism and mm. you look at religion and Marxism's goal is sort of heaven on earth, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But the crucial question is why do people have beliefs? Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose what you're saying is that they have beliefs so that they can avoid the stark truth of their aloneness and the fact that we're going to die. And oh gosh, no, no, I don't think I'm. I'm we're not going to have anything after death. So just, just them trying to suck themselves into thinking that. No, I don't think I'm. I'm half as dismissive of belief as you suggest, and I don't think the book is attempting to make anything like a sweeping statement or set of statements as that. I think one of the things the book is interested in exploring is how any profound set of convictions tends to come with its own set of defences for fending off any information, any new intelligence that might 
trouble it, that might uh, potentially contradict its truths. Its yeah. truths. So to that extent, I think it can be a debilitating thing, um, a constricting thing. But kind of a false way of looking at the world, the reality. Then yes, but that's I think so. That I, I, I guess to that extent, the book has some negative things to say about the nature of belief. But you know, look, it's interesting. Uh, it's been widely described as a satirical book, a, a satire on the left, or a, a satire on believers. I have to say, without any faux ingenuousness, I really didn't set out to, to write that, and it troubles me to have it called a satire, because I don't think I had that much distance from my characters. I would say that the particular struggles I depict them having are struggles that I think all of us engage in to a greater or lesser extent. Audrey, who is this rather monstrous matriarch, has this very peremptory, tough-minded, one could say close-minded way of arguing her position. But it seems to me that if we're honest, we all of us have had moments in our lives where we are arguing a particular position or a conviction and striving at all costs to win the argument so that when our opponent uh, or our interlocutor says something that actually strikes us as correct, we do not open ourselves up to it like a flower and say, oh goodness, that's a new way of looking at it, thank you, yes, perhaps you're right. We struggle for the next stone in the river to leap onto to keep our argument going. So, so that we can win. So that we can win. And, and in fact, you know, that's so interesting. It's akin to what happens in literary criticism. A lot of battles are fought just to win the point. Yeah. As opposed to, as you said, trying to get a better understanding. Right. Say, ah, that means I might have to go back. And because I think one of the things is that one stakes a great deal of one's identity and one's sense of oneself and one's idea of what good and evil are mm. well, in what one believes. Well, there's pride too. There's just a pride in being able to win points. Sure. There is that. There's just the sort of the spirit of the, the argument and the debate and God damn it, you're going to win it. Mm. But I think also there is a, a real horror of watching the edifice of one's beliefs crumble and the minute one sees sort of fissures mm. developing I think for all of us there is a very strong instinct to say oh, and paper them over as fast as possible rather than let the thing crumble yeah because if you do let it crumble then what do you have right you have the question I'm trying to have answered is okay so we have these beliefs in many cases we acknowledge to ourselves at least that they may not be the truth. Right. And so what are we trying to hide from? Uh, or what are we trying to explain to ourselves that life isn't meaningless? It's difficult because one's talking about a whole range of beliefs. This book deals with every Politics. sort of belief from one's faith in the happiness of one's marriage to uh, one's belief in dialectical materialism. So I guess it, uh, different beliefs serve different purposes. I think that the impulse to, you know, stick your fingers in your ear and, and sing la 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 when flack is incoming and, and you feel your beliefs under threat is not necessarily fear of the existential void. It, it can simply be 
the enormous complications of trying to re reassess what you think. But it doesn't seem to me you necessarily, it's not always belief in Obama or the meaninglessness of life. It's blind faith in Obama versus a kind of more subtle, nuanced, probably more troubling vision of the world and how things might turn out, let's say, in America. Well, you see, and this is where we get to the, the, the actual gene, right. the belief gene. Apparently, there are... Oh, you're going to come up with some I'm going to come horrifying no, no, scientific no. research. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's <laughs> what it is, is I, I just had a look at what this guy's name is, Hamer, who has written a book. And he has said, let, let's just hear it. It's an inherent predisposition to be spiritual, right. to reach out and look for a higher being. And what they are trying to do in their, their research is to measure a sense of at-oneness with the universe, independent of formal religious beliefs. More specifically, it actually looks at three different subscales. One of them is called self-forgetfulness, a measure of people's propensity to completely lose themselves in what they're doing, whether it's weeding the garden or mm -hmm. meditating or whatever. People who are self-transcendent put less focus on themselves and more on everything outside of them. They see the connections to things. I'm just going to read a bit more here. Okay? Mm -hmm. A psychic component is called transpersonal identification, a feeling of a sense of unity with everything else in the universe. And then there's the third scale called mysticism or spiritual acceptance, which is more like, do you think mystical experiences have changed your life? Do you believe that science can't? everything. Do you believe there might be ESP, for example? Believing that there is more going on than meets the eye. And so what they're saying is that there's a ge genetic predisposition to have the chemical mixture in your brain. Yes, although it's interesting that, that that research very much focuses on supernatural beliefs. Beliefs in, you know, a kind of spiritual predisposition, being predisposed to a kind of mystical yeah. ideas. Yeah. and ways of being. I suppose one of the notions of this book is not necessarily in contradiction to that, but it's slightly different in that I think one of the things I'm suggesting is that the political believer, the person of very strong political convictions, has more in common with the person of strong religious faith than is commonly supposed. I tell you, when I was writing it, it was only in the course of writing it that a bunch of those big up the atheists books came out you know the Hitchens and the Dawkins and so on and I am an atheist and so I greeted their publication with interest and he's coming out with a movie too warm feelings who Hitchens or Dawkins Hitchens. Hitchens I suppose one of the things that did occur to me in reading the books and then in, in sort of taking in stuff that went on around those books was Precisely that, that there is a certain amount of, it seems to be, unfounded snootiness on the part of atheists. That we're so smart that we don't get sucked in? The, yes, the, the, there is a kind of assumption that people without the comfort of religious faith don't have other forms of belief which are not, strictly speaking, entirely rational. We, Think, we don't need a crutch, then. We're able to face the facts without... And not just that, but answers. that all of our beliefs are kind of rigorously passed through some sort of mill of rationality, you know, kind of carefully considered for the supporting scientific evidence. And I don't think that's actually the case. Well, it's interesting, too. All of your characters are confronted with some sort of a crisis. 
Mm-hmm. And in fact, speaking of holy people, many of the famous Jesus and Muhammad and, and others evolved or changed because of some event mm-hmm. as well. Were you thinking in those terms? Their relationship to the universe has somehow changed, and that's a very deep spiritual experience. I would say that every great religious leader had that type of experience. It's purely about how the mind perceives things and works, whether or not those beliefs are true, whether they come purely from within or whether they come from without. We just absolutely can't say. Well, I I certainly wasn't thinking of the example of Jesus or Muhammad while writing the book. I think the closest anyone has to a, as it were, road to Damascus experience is Rosa, the character in the novel who finds Orthodox Judaism and begins to explore it to the horror of her atheist family. Who are Jewish and who rejected these. Right, who were secular atheist Jews who belong to another very strong Jewish tradition of activism and socialist faith. Yes, so I suppose she has that sort of thing, although hers is rather troubled and she finds herself deeply attracted by orthodoxy and in almost equal measure repelled because in Judaism at least, you know, orthodox Judaism comes with an enormous number of arcane rules and and bylaws and so on. And women Um, women are treated as equals. Yes, well, you know, one has to be very careful about how one puts this. They are treated as different. Yes, I mean, one of the things that's always cited is that uh, orthodox men have a set of prayers that they say every morning and one of the things they say is they thank God for having not been made a woman. So, There's a vulgar, vulgar joke that could be told here. Perhaps off tape. I would love to hear it. Sure, okay. Well, it's about, you know, I wish I, I had been born a woman so that I could play with my breasts all day. <laughs> right. Now that's a, a Steve... Steve Martin? Or? Steve Martin, yes. Well, I, I don't think that's his joke, though, I'm sure. Well, maybe not. Or maybe not. He, he claims that it's his, does he? I don't know. He was the one I heard telling it. She encounters uh, an Orthodox Jewish family, and, in fact, when they're at dinner, she makes the point that she helps the children, black children, mm. in New York, in Brooklyn or Harlem or yeah. wherever it is. Uptown, yeah. And there's the question of whether or not one helps one's own first, or everyone. Right. And there's a sort of that cross-purposes there, I think. Yes, yes. You um, make that point there. Yes, I, I would be on, on her side, as it happens, in that particular argument. The man to whom she's talking says, well, you know, it always seems to me it's important to help your own first and she says well they are my own mm. they're New Yorkers just as I am or you could say they were Americans just as mm. I am or you could indeed say they're humans just like I am yeah, so why are you practicing this this faith is it to bond with your own people or is it to be good to human beings yeah I don't think he would say that was the uh, reason he was practicing his faith he's practicing his faith because God told him to I mean I have a great deal of sympathy for the orthodox point of view, sort of almost temperamentally. I understand that if, like Rosa, you wander into a synagogue one day and feel some intimation of a divine presence... Your gene starts twitching. Right. You would want to do what that divinity had apparently set down for you to do, what he had told Moses on Mount Sinai to do. So I, I sort of understand the all-or-nothing aspect of it, that the kind of reform version of things m- might seem rather a cop-out, a kind of watered-down version thereof. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said something like, you can't just go into the foyer. You really you have to go right back into the room. Right, up to the lectern, up to the font. 
<laughs> in, in order to truly experience what real belief and faith is about. But as with all of these things, I mean, writing about Rosa was very difficult. It was by far the most challenging part of the book for me, precisely because I have not had that experience, and I am writing about it, as it were, from the outside. To the extent that I did any real research for this book, it was all in that area. It was a, a lot about the Baal Teshuvah movement, which is returning Jews, people who repent and, and become Orthodox, having either been... Born again. Yes, essentially, it's a kind of Jewish version of born again. So, to some extent, you know, one at one point, Rosa says, perhaps it's, you know, I'm always accusing the Orthodox, because she's battling with, with these various mitzvot that she finds difficult to deal with, the various kind of tasks, duties of an Orthodox person. And she says, well, perhaps my objections to them are born of a kind of lack of imagination or insufficient subtlety of mind and I'm accusing them of being literal minded in their reading of the Bible but perhaps it's me that's literal minded and I have definitely had some version of that feeling myself when thinking about religion It's not the, the religion's fault, it's your fault Yes, in some sense and partly because once you have met very bright people who believe and who can somehow hold in their hands all the sort of manifest contradictions or apparent contradictions, let's say, yeah, it's of their faith. Yeah, but it's this like your Trudeau. Right. He's brilliant intellectually. Yeah. But he was a devout Catholic. Yeah. And he was a Jesuit who always questioned, and yet the answers were accepted as truth. Right. Personally, I still tend to come down if I want to be crude about it and say, <laughs> I still think I'm right, and they are mistaken. Right, that, that there are no answers? No, that, that there isn't a God. But there remains, somewhere in the back of my head, the possibility that I am simply seeing through a rather darker glass than they are. Well, there is no answer. That's, you know, they come up with these known unknowns. You have no greater claim on that than anyone no, else. No, no, which is why I say I am a person of faith also. I have yeah. faith that God doesn't exist. Right. Of course, it doesn't mean that I am as, if not more, enchanted and excited by the mysteries mm. of the universe. I, I've always thought that it's, it's a curiosity quotient, and that you're blessed with varying degrees of curiosity. Oh, you mean you think that's what determines whether people are religious or not? No, I think that's the gift of life. It's, you put on this earth. Right. And the degree to which your mind bubbles away trying to figure everything out yeah. is the degree to which you've been blessed. That's a very nice way of putting it, yeah. And I suppose your criticism is that people who have faith aren't as curious as you are. I have a sense that you're, a couple of times now, you've put in rather starker, more aggressive terms my thoughts on religion than I would choose for myself. That's precisely what I mean when I say that I've met some very bright extremely bright, brighter than me, and curious people. And I think they would claim quite justly that actually their faith does not make them less curious, partly because their faith doesn't explain all the mysteries. It doesn't explain, certainly in any way that satisfies them, what God is really like, or exactly how he made. So, I mean, I, I think there is a difference between certain kinds of very coarse fundamentalism and other more subtle yeah, or perhaps these Forms people have gone through all sorts of thinking processes and experiences in their lives and arrived at a con almost a logical conclusion. 
if you also, can call it that, yeah, the versus other... a blind acceptance early on that maybe even being brainwashed into believing this, or it's hereditary. Right, although I, you see, I guess that's precisely what I'm getting at, that there's an enormous amount of faith that isn't blind, and one of the things we haven't touched on is a whole range of extremely smart people who carry out, let's say, the rituals and the um, observances of Orthodox Judaism, but who would say that in large part they regard the stuff of the Bible and the, the Old Testament and of the Talmud as metaphorical in, in its import. So I, I have sympathy with all of that. The ancient stories and myths that we tell ourselves to make sense of life. Right. My feeling about that is well, of course, there are enormously valuable things to be derived from those teachings. And one doesn't have to believe that Jesus walked on water to feel that the things that have come down to us as the things he said seem pretty wise and uh, useful on the whole. But having decided that, I'm not quite sure why I, I would never feel compelled to keep up with all the other stuff, the going to church and the talking about him as your saviour and so on. I'm speaking with Zoe Heller, who most recently is the author of a novel called The Believers. I'd like to change gears here, and uh, seeing as I'm trying to square you into a circular hole, how about Martin Amos meets Jane Austen? What about that? Well, would you suggest that might be a good way of describing you as a writer? Well, they're both writers I admire very much. And in fact, both writers were quite important to me when I was growing up. It's very hard to... Um, know what one's own writing is really like so I, I'm not the person to say I would be <laughs> I, would, I would certainly settle for that as, as, a, as an account of me I think that's pretty flattering I love superb one-liners this is why I love Amos and there's there's a couple in the book here that uh, one of them I just think puts you into the, the box seat category of writers oh, golly it has to do with a penis but I think maybe the only time the penis is mentioned the words uh, in, in the book. So it's, do you remember okay. that line? Uh, <laughs> I've got to read it. It's so good. Actually, there's a couple, but they're both Joel's penis. They're Joel's penis. There's one at the beginning when he talks about his penis still being long enough and thick enough to thump companionably yes. against his thigh. Is that the one you're talking about? Uh, yes, and the word companionably is, I think, the way you use it is fantastic. But then there's another one where his children tend to catch sight of it when uh, he's striding around the kitchen on yeah. a Sunday morning preparing yeah. French toast for them. Yeah, and I, I myself have uh, had that fear. Thankfully, <laughs> <laughs> it hadn't come about. I knew exactly what you were saying. It's like, oh my goodness, I've got to be careful here. But he obviously wasn't that <laughs> no, careful. No, wasn't that careful. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, particularly the early part of the book, the first half of the book, is full of great lines. Is that interesting? I wonder what that has to do with its construction. I want to get them out right here. It's lovely when um, people really read your sentences like that, because that's, of course, what one really hopes for. And I, I like sentences. I would say I'm better at sentences than at the, the bigger picture. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Okay, here we go. I'm going to bring my little tape recorder over here. So, so her style, at least in the first 56 pages, shares some of the same powerful Amos nutrients, witness dark flowers of perspiration blossoming at the armholes of her dress. Up close, the three men were a small anthology of body odors. The American trick of seeming to smile even as he was talking, 
There was a brief silence as they registered the eagerness with which she had disowned Martin. There we are. Those are just a few. Mm. Yeah. So, and, and in fact, that's why I read. Yeah. Why do you read? Well, I think we're probably alike in that respect. I, I'm a sentence reader. The great pleasure is to discover authors who work at the level of the sentence. And a lot don't, you know, and they do other things, very interestingly. For me, it keep, it's a reason to keep turning the pages because Absolutely. I want to find more of these gems. Yeah. I am not as... It was interesting because about this book, which has set, you know, quite a bit of plot in it, I was interviewed by a rather grand man on British radio who said... Well, of course, you've written a soap opera. Um, why is it that uh, women have always tended towards this form? And I stuttered for a bit because I was so taken aback by the question. And I said, well, I, I, I rather dispute that. You know, I don't, I don't think this is... It's a novel about a family, but uh, I don't think um, that's exclusively female territory. Tolstoy didn't write soap operas. Afterwards, he said, no, no, you answered that quite the wrong way, which I thought was fantastic because it was both asking a rather rude question and then correcting me on how I'd answered it. But uh, I don't know, what you, what you should have said was that, of course, it's this traditionally female form, a uh, perfectly honourable tradition of women writing about the domestic because they didn't have access to the extra domestic. So I, I trooped off into the London traffic, having been... Having been told. Yes, having been told. I can't remember where I started no, all that. We were talking about why we read and... Why we uh, read. No, and about the question of plot. I don't feel as, for instance, I think someone like Colm Toybean feels that plot is a rather crude crutch. It feels like it's being superimposed on It's on not really reality. literary, that yeah. you know, and it's stuff for commercial fiction. In his latest book, for instance, it's a very stalwartly uneventful things happen great movements are made and people move from provincial island to Brooklyn but he avoids uh, you know satisfying arc and a beginning a middle and end and um, all up, yeah. yeah and he doesn't want to create a page turner of that sort I do feel some more greater obligation to have a story and I don't have a problem I don't feel um, that I'm sort of selling out if I have a story but it's true that I'm much more interested in character and, and language really than anything else I'm just going to quote you uh, pretty well all the reviews, and I've uh, got a couple more questions just mm. to close, closing down. Pretty well all the reviews are, are positive. Uh, this is the one negative. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> nice of you. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, sorry to laugh so heartily, but it's it's a sign of my sharing your pain. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. The reader closes the volume with a faint sense of having been cheated of the narrative promised by the assurance of the opening pages with their bittersweet blend of ideology and hope. And another sort of tying in with that, the hasty finale with Carla, who's another one of the daughters, mm. on the train. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. In the, l in the last book I wrote, actually in all three books I've written, um, I've been accused of rather... Just leaving it? Yeah. That wasn't my sense at all. I mean, two interesting things is that in this book I really thought I'd written a rather kind of something I'd been carefully laying the way for for a long time in the book. Mm. And it was it was a very satisfying and satisfactory ending and, unusually for me, a rather triumphant and hopeful ending. I also felt that this character, Carla, was my most successful attempt at writing a good person. 
Yes, and you've been accused of writing a lot of unsympathetic characters right. in your career. So here was this woman who was rather downtrodden, who was a sort of dutiful daughter and always grotesquely undervalued by mm. her family. And here she is sort of finally breaking out and pursuing happiness in a rather courageous way. And number one, as you point out, a couple of people have said, oh, rather hasty ending, very unsatisfactory. And even more widely, people have said, there's no one to like in this novel. They're all very bleak, grim, miserable, horrid characters. And when I have said meekly, oh, but look at Carla, she's rather nice, isn't she? And, you know, she's mm. a virtuous person, no? She's overweight, though. How can you like her? Somebody's yes, overweight. Actually, what they said is she's fat and she's mm. pathetic. <laughs> well, wait a minute. If I'm the one who's always being accused <laughs> of being harsh and bleak, mm. you know, what are you? I mean, we're now going to dismiss characters on the basis of their weight and the fact that they're not jaunty enough for the bulk of the book. But the, I think it's funny because almost the, like people who are searching for religion, they want a novel to answer the questions, to tie everything up nicely so that they're, they feel... Well, no, here's an interesting thing. The really think that one pretty much hardens oneself to, you know, the business of, of being reviewed and mm. criticised and so on. Often one finds things where you sort of yeah, you, you found, yes, that is a flaw. Ooh, I, I thought I'd kind of covered that mm. over well enough. Absolutely right. The one thing that has been said about this book that has really concerned me and upset me and caused me sleepless nights is that at the end, one of the protagonists, Audrey, the Paradin mother, stands up at a funeral and gives a eulogy to her husband. And in various quarters, it has been understood as a kind of bizarre and out-of-the-blue turnaround on her part, a, a decision to become a kind person. I thought I had made it transparent that this was a not a cynical attempt, but a, 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 an attempt to co-opt the person who has been a threat to the way she has set up her life and to thereby sort of diffuse the threat. This is not her having a sudden conversion, but on the contrary, I'm going to go on whether I really believe in the myth of my husband or the myth of our great marriage anymore. It doesn't matter. I have made my bed and this is the one I'm going to lie in. And it's a fairly vast misprision, and that troubles me. You want people to understand what you're trying to Yeah, tell. I mean, you know, I, I sort of pay lip service to this idea that, well, you send a book out there and people will do with it what they will, and, yes, you know, a text is infinitely yeah. interpretable, but I don't really <laughs> feel that way inside. <laughs> I want them to, you know, particularly about something as fundamental as that. Well, especially if more than one person has perceived it in that way. Yes, well, you know, a couple of important reviewers, who, who then, of course, influence the way other people read it, suggested as much, and that, that was a concern. Just in closing, you mentioned uh, prior to us taping this that uh, Sybil Bedford was favorite writer mm. of yours, and she had written a two-volume biography of Aldous Huxley. Mm. Uh, I just want to quote and get your feedback on what Huxley had said about Ayat in Gaza, because he's um, concerned about going beyond religion. I mean, he spent his whole life trying to, to get something that would more meaningful or fulfilling that everyone could believe I'm just there's a line here that he was racking his brains on how to end the, the novel here it is he was using the novel using his métier d'écrivain as a means of getting through finding a solution in the novel would be finding a solution for his life yes I absolutely do not share that aspiration 
Here's another one. I wish I could see any remedy for the horrors of, of human beings except religion, or could see any religion that we could all believe in. Yeah. I don't now and never have held any desire or held out any hope for a religion in which we could all believe. Or rather, I mean, there are things which I would like to unite us all, but I don't think they would really come under the auspices of religion. On the other question, I think the big difference is that I don't expect a novel I write to answer questions. I don't expect novels I read to answer questions. And I think in an awful number of cases, novels that are written by people who believe they've come up with the answers to their questions are slightly dead on the page. Now, it seems terribly wishy-washy and a cop-out to say, oh, I just want to raise the questions, that is my job as an author, and, you know, sort of, hey, earn your money. Tell uh, me what to think. I guess I would say that if you write, for instance, a beautiful sentence or two, if you make somebody laugh, or even if you pose the question in an unusual or interesting way, that seems to me ambition enough. But then it is only my third novel. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, companionably sharing <laughs> your time with me. Yeah, you've given that, that word now. That has such a dirty connotation. <laughs> I, love, I love that line. Thank you very much for having me. I've been speaking with Zoe Heller, who is the author of two previous novels, Everything You Know and What Was She Thinking? Notes on a Scandal, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2003. She lives in New York and also on a fabulous little island off... It's in the Bahamas. Oh, it's actually. in the Bahamas, okay. Very lovely, yeah. We've been talking about her latest novel, The Believers. Thanks again. Thank you.